Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Swinney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. Kiva Pharmaceuticals reported earnings this morning. The stock is off about 7.4% today's trading, $11.86 a share. But year-to-date, the stock is up nearly 23%. Let's break down the earnings and the key issues facing Tiva Pharmaceuticals. We do that today with Core Schultz, CEO of Tiva Pharmaceuticals. Core, thanks so much for joining us here. Let's kick it off, get right to it. Talk to us about uh, your earnings for the most recent period and, and your outlook for this year. Thanks, Paul. Uh, great to be with you and Vani. I think the earnings report for the fourth quarter is a really solid one, and I think the whole report for 2020 is also very solid. You could say we had, of course, lots of operational challenges due to the COVID-19 pandemic, but in all manufacturing sites in our whole logistical network, we managed to overcome it and basically serve the 200 million patients we serve every day with our generics uh, in a pretty steady way and supporting healthcare systems worldwide. At the same time, we managed our cost well, so they were down for the third year in a row. Uh, we managed to increase our earnings uh, slightly, which was also positive. And then we continued to pay down debt. And as I'm sure you know, by uh, now, over the last three years, I've been paying down debt to the tune of $10 billion. And uh, we'll continue to do so in, uh, in this year and in the coming years. So all in all, uh, we've stabilized the business. Yes, Cora, favorable credit markets for sure. We'll ask you about that more in a moment. But first, the vaccine distribution in Israel has been among the best in the world, and you've obviously been very much part of that. How does that continue, and have you, have you plans to expand that internationally? Have you advice for other countries? So it's uh, absolutely correct that we are taking care of the whole logistical side of the vaccination program in Israel. So basically picking up the... Uh, Cargo from the cargo plane, taking it out to our logistics center, repacking, ensuring freezing and cooling and distribution, making sure it gets out to the 400 vaccination centers in Israel and that it's the right amount that gets to the right center at the right time. All in all, of course, to ensure that we have uh, a maximum utilization of the vaccines that Israel uh, is receiving from Pfizer and from Moderna at, uh, at the current point in time. So we have great, uh, I'd say, insight into how that works right now. I would say the only country where we really have an operational uh, capability to, to help out in the same way would probably be in the U.S., where we have the distributor company called Anda. And uh, we'd be more than uh, happy to help out with distribution. Uh, we're not currently involved, but, uh, but who knows, maybe uh, in the coming months there will be a role for us to play there to secure fast and effective distribution of vaccines to relevant uh, locations. So, uh, Core, Tiva is one of the pharmaceutical companies that is being sued by the U.S. as it relates to the opioid crisis. Uh, also, companies part of an alleged drug-fixing cartel. Talk, to, Give us an update on these legal issues, because I know reading some Wall Street research, they do weigh on the stock. What's the latest? Yeah, so the latest on the uh, opioid litigation is really that we, uh, more than a year ago, agreed to a framework with uh, the states and uh, the plaintiff lawyers that represent the subdivisions, so counties, cities, and so on. And unfortunately, we have not sort of uh, got across the finishing line, and we don't have the framework settlement turned into firm settlements 
We did this together with four other companies, the three big distributors and Johnson and Johnson. And uh, nobody has reached the point where, you know, everybody signs uh, a firm settlement. One of the reasons is that we have 50 states involved. We have 1,500 plaintiff lawyers, five companies. And even though each company does their own settlement at the end of the day, it has just proven difficult to get everybody to sort of sit down and, and do the final details. And it has not helped that the COVID-19 pandemic has delayed uh, basically all trials. So all the trials that could have been trigger points by motivating people to get the framework uh, into a firm settlement, all these trials have been delayed and they're still being delayed due to COVID-19. So I'm very optimistic that the actual framework will be implemented. We are offering free uh, generic suboxone for all states. That's a key product in uh, sort of treating overdose, so basically reducing deaths from overdoses, which is a, a key concern, of course, in the uh, face of the substance misuse among the American population. The other companies are basically offering cash that can be used to help uh, get people off uh, their situation with substance abuse. So the only good solution for the American public is, of course, that this framework gets into a firm settlement. And uh, I hope this will happen. I'm optimistic it will happen. But I'm a little doubtful about the timing, simply due to the fact that there is no legal pressure on the parties to to get signed on the dotted line, so to speak. Yeah, well, we'll definitely continue to follow that one. Finally, Cora, you talked about the credit markets. Obviously, they're hugely favorable to the likes of Teva. In fact, yields now lower than when they were still rated investment grade by ratings agencies before Teva became a fallen angel. Do you continue to just raise raise money in the credit markets to pay down debt? So we only raise money, uh, you could say, when we have to, because we're paying down debt out of our operational cash flow as we go along. We did that last year with roughly $2 billion. We're going to do it this year with a bit more than $2 billion. And the next time where we really need to refinance, that is uh, in 2023, or that's the debt stack of 2023. That's about uh, around $4 billion. That's more than what we expect our operational cash flow will be. So we will most likely do a refinancing about a year from now, where we will look at refinancing 2023 and potentially some of 2025. All right, well, we have to say goodbye to you there, but thank you very much for giving us some of your time today, earnings day, and, and always always a, such a busy day. That's Cora Schultz, who is Teva Pharmaceuticals CEO, joining us there after an excellent earnings season. You know, coming off of those March lows of last year, the S&P's up about 75%, and a lot of folks are starting to get worried about a bubble and and when you see stories like the GameStop and all the SPACs uh, coming out, just adding to the concerns about are we in a bubble uh, in this, particularly in the equity markets. Let's chat about that with Jim Paulson. He's a chief investment strategist for the Luthold Group, joining us on the phone from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Jim, thanks so much for joining us again here. Again, a, a s- extraordinary move off the March lows here. How are you viewing the markets right here? Yeah, Paul, thanks for having me today. Um, yeah, I I um I think that you know there's certainly a lot of the indicators, sentiment indicators and the like have certainly come up uh, a fair amount and and uh, should could certainly bring and will bring sometime this year a correction. Uh, I think we we could get at least one of those. I think it's going to come a little later, but I think that's very possible. But this this narrative that's out there, it's, it's gotten really strong. This idea of you know a bubble. 
a major market mania bubble that's developing that will result in the collapse like the dot-com collapse, I, I think that's got really low probability. Um, yes, we've, uh, we've come up a lot from the March lows, but, but if you look at over the last year, we might be up 15 16%. Uh, over the last three years, I think we've annualized around 13%. And during the last two years, for example, 24 months roughly, this, this S&P 500 has suffered a 20% decline in late 18 and a 34% decline last year. I just can't tell you another period where we ended up in a bubble during a 20, after a 24-month period where we had two really nasty bear markets almost over the same time period. And then if you look more broadly, Paul, um, you know, Russell Large Value uh, international markets have gone nowhere for the last three years. They're still roughly flat. And until November, small caps hadn't moved higher. So I, I think it's overblown. I, I really do. You know, one of the things that presses me is you talk about the Greenspan put. <laughs> well, we've got a vaccine put. How, how much are you going to sell this market off when you know uh, that by mm-hmm. fall or or so by the end of this year, there's pandemic's going to wind down a lot more. We've got a policy put. I mean, we've got another trillion-dollar stimulus relief package coming, it seems like, every month. How much are you going to sell off in the face of that? But we've Jim, got an earnings revival put going on. Earnings estimates are coming up every day. And we've got a, we've got a bubble watch put. How, can we really have a bubble when so many are worried about it? I don't know. Those are things I'd throw out, I guess. For how long can the Federal Reserve and fiscal stimulus slash pandemic relief keep the demand coming for these companies? I mean, you walk around any major city right now and it's absolutely, it's terrifyingly bare. Well, the, uh, Lonnie, I, I, I personally don't know if we need a lot more stimulus. One of the things that's greatly underestimated is that there's about a one-year to two-year lag in historically between when stimulus is introduced and when it starts to really impact the economy. So we're going to get a lot of juice from what we started to introduce last year, Mm. let alone the new stuff we're bringing now into the party. And at the end of the day, um, the real issue is reopening. And stimulus can't really do that, but we're going to get that. I mean, the biggest stimulus in the room isn't fiscal policy or monetary policy. It's a shot in the arm. Because by, you know, if you think that sentiment's too giddy right now in the investment markets, what's it going to be like on VC Day when we declare victory over COVID in the fall? And there's going to be herd that's vaccinated and they are free to roam again and take in entertainment and social interaction. That sounds Um, terrifying. I think there's pent-up demand that'll be spent. I mean, people are going to feel palatable relief. Maybe we should rethink this whole vaccine thing, Jim. What do you think? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, Jim, are, where are you in terms of um, are, are you in this rotation play that's worked so well for investors really since September, kind of, you know, maybe on the margin, lightening up on the Apples and the Amazons of the world and, and, and looking for some of those cyclical names, maybe some of the small cap names that, in fact, would and will benefit from a reopening here. How, how do you feel about that? Where, where are you? Yeah, I, I definitely uh, we've been overweighted. What I call broader marketplace, or uh, really since middle last year or so. But you know, I, I would include you know small caps, cyclicals, uh, 
value stocks, high beta, and international markets in that mix. I definitely want to be overweighted there, but I wouldn't exactly, I'd be underweighted tech in New Era, but I don't think I'd totally get out of it. I think it's going to continue, it's going to underperform probably, but it's going to continue to participate, and it holds you up on bad days. You know, if it really, the cyclicals and those more volatile broader market plays have greater volatility, and on those days, if you own some new era, it's going to hold you up. So I don't sum a bull. One of the things I'd say, Paul, is that what I found, consumer confidence is still very depressed. And to Bonnie's point, you know, people still feel pretty concerned about where we're at here. But if we are going to get people vaccinated here, I think consumer confidence is going to rally even more. And what I found is a very close relationship between improvements in Main Street confidence mm. and what happens to these broader market plays, like yes. small caps. And, and I think there's still quite a bit of that ahead of us when you look ahead over the next year. Well, Jim, looking forward to speaking to you throughout this whole process. No doubt it's going to be a fascinating year. Thanks for joining today. Jim Polson, CIO at the Luthold Group. The second impeachment trial of former President Trump really gets underway today. Uh, let's get the latest with June Grasso, Bloomberg News legal analyst, host of Bloomberg Law. You can hear that weeknights at 10 p.m. Wall Street time on Bloomberg Radio. Joining us on the phone, June, talk to us a little bit about what we can expect from the actual trial aspect here going forward. Well, what's going to happen today is probably starting out the same as yesterday, which is there are going to be a video presentation of what happened during the riot. And you can expect that the House managers are going to lay out their case in chronological order. So you're going to see a mix of talking and video, and they're hoping that this will sort of bring the senators back to that minute when they, they faced the crowd and proved to them that President Trump should be guilty of, of uh, inciting the crowd. Are we absolutely certain that the time has passed when we might actually have witnesses? Has that decision come and gone at this point, June? Well, the decision hasn't been made about witnesses, but the feeling is from all the reporting that there is probably not going to be any witnesses because basically of the time factor. You have both sides wanting this to end quickly. The Democrats want Joe Biden to be able to get on with his agenda and they also want to present a concise case unlike the last time and the Republicans just want it to be over. But I think they're going to be missing, the House managers are going to be missing an element of their case if they don't have witnesses because we don't know what President, former President Trump's reactions to the riot right. are. We would have to hear that from witnesses. And also the delay he took in doing anything to stop it. And that goes to his intent and connects him to the crowd. And that's the important part of their case. And the hard part, they have to connect him to what happened. Well, and that's, Paul, sorry to jump in, no but worries. that's what I find astonishing. Yeah. So you can understand how Republicans may not want witnesses, but I'm not quite sure why the House managers don't want witnesses so badly. I know you join, you say that it's the it's the Biden agenda and so on, but, you know, there's an argument uh, I, well, for it. I, 
No, I, I definitely think that they should have some witnesses. I think that they're afraid that it will get into, for example, if you have a witness, then you have, then the other side is going to call a witness. So it, it will drag it out. But I mean, look at Clinton's impeachment trial. There were witnesses. And right now, the Democrats are in control. There were no witnesses at the last impeachment trial of Donald Trump because the Republicans were in control and, and didn't want witnesses. So, you know, from my way of thinking, witnesses on at least one, the issue of President Trump's intent would really go a long way. But also maybe the Democrats, the House managers are thinking, well, nothing is going to get 17 Republicans to vote with us. So why drag it out? It's hard to tell. Mm. June, what do you think uh, the Republican or the defendant's uh, defense, in fact, will be? What a good question, Paul. Because <laughs> I didn't necessarily get <laughs> and, an answer yesterday. I know. The, the problem was, you know, yesterday what should have been a day that was fairly easy for them because they could have made legal arguments, even though the legal arguments weren't strong. But we saw that, and it sort of echoed what their brief was. Their first brief was, you know, filled with errors. There was a typo on the first page, and it was very disjointed. And so the defense yesterday from Mr. Castor, I mean, was rambling, almost nonsensical at times. And with the second lawyer shown, there were conflicting arguments. It was, you know, it was too soon to try President Trump. There wasn't enough procedure. He didn't have any time. But then it was too late to try him because he was out of office. And there were factual mistakes about the timeline of impeachment. So, I mean, I suppose what their best argument will be is what the hardest part of the House manager's case is, which is proving that connecting President Trump to the actual assault on the Capitol. And that is, I mean, that's going to be tough. If this were a criminal case, which it's not, I don't think you could prove that beyond a reasonable doubt with the kind of evidence they have now. It's not a criminal trial. And the, as we've seen before, the senators can do whatever they want. But I think that that element is going to be something that the defense can really focus on. You know, President Trump's speech, yes, it was it was heated, but he also said, which isn't played very much, but there was also a part of that speech, because I listened to the whole thing where he said, let's go to the Capitol, let's march peacefully. There was one there was one sentence about marching peaceful. They could take that sentence and use that to make their case that he did not want them to storm the Capitol. He had no idea that this was going to happen. And since there'll be no witnesses, most likely, they may be able to make a good argument out of that. I mean, they have a case to make. Very, very briefly, June, introducing some of these new videos or anything, does that help with state cases or DA cases down the line in any way? Well, I think that those videos are what the federal prosecutors and the FBI have been looking at to try to, and they've been charging people based on those videos. I mean, you'll see a charge and you'll see what the charge is and then you see the video of that person doing something like throwing, uh, you know, breaking through barriers. So yes, those videos are going to be used and that's tough evidence to get by. It's very hard to say, for example, oh, I didn't take this out of, I didn't steal anything from the Capitol when there's a picture of you, you know, walking out with the podium of Nancy <laughs> Pelosi. So, I mean, that is really tough evidence. I expect a lot of plea deals, and I think the feds are going to try to flip a lot mm. of people. Yeah. So June, we have to leave it there, but thank, uh, you. thank you so much. And of course, we'll be tuning in to Bloomberg Law for further updates. 
Chris Bryant is a Bloomberg Opinion columnist covering industrial companies, also SPACs and so much more. But he's written a great column on Elon Musk's Bitcoin bet. He says it's a bean counter is a nightmare. Chris, thanks for joining. So the backstory is that Elon decided to put $830 billion worth of Tesla's cash, not his own cash, but Tesla's cash, into Bitcoin. And of course, we saw a variety of responses. So, um, many of them, as you can imagine, were absolutely thrilled with this idea and you know, recommended other companies do the same. But what say you? Was that advisable? <laughs> So to clarify, $1.5 billion of Tesla's cash has gone into to Bitcoin, which is still an awful lot in the context of uh, Tesla's overall cash balance of about $19 billion. And yes, uh, obviously uh, a very risky approach given how volatile uh, Bitcoin is. But the, the point of my column was to focus on, on a rather geeky uh, point, which is how you account for Bitcoin. Because cryptocurrencies are still so new that the accounting authorities haven't yet developed sort of real standards for how this is done, or at least the ones that they have sort of imposed on on Bitcoin are sort of pretty outdated. And uh, the accounting for Bitcoin is going to cause Tesla all kinds of problems, um, as I can explain. Um, the, the the chief problem is this. Essentially, if the price of Bitcoin falls, then Tesla will have to book an impairment. But if the price goes back up again, it's not allowed to write up the value of its Bitcoin holdings. So in a sense, it can only lose. Chris here, you know, as we've seen companies, obviously, the, the, the line item on the balance sheet is cash and marketable securities. Bitcoin arguably is is... I guess it's a marketable security, but it's a very volatile one, as you point out in, in your column here. Um, so what is a company like Tesla going to do here? Because the mark to market on this thing is crazy, given the volatility. So what do they do? Do they hedge it? <laughs> well, it's a good question. I think I'd, uh, they didn't say anything about hedging. I'd be very surprised if they hedge it. I mean, obviously, a lot of companies do hedge their foreign currency exposure, but seems to me like uh, Tesla is, is making an outright bet here on, on the price of, of, of Bitcoin. Um, what they're going to have to do is, is classify it as an, an intangible asset on, on the balance sheet rather than lump it in with their cash holdings or as a financial investment. And as I say, what that, that might end up doing, unfortunately, is hurting Tesla's earnings because you might have a, an odd situation where, let's say, the price of Bitcoin is fell by one third, uh, which is historically, you know, not unlikely, incredibly volatile asset. Um, Tesla, uh, having bought one and a half billion dollars worth, uh, would have to book a five hundred million dollar loss against its uh, uh, holdings that quarter, which obviously, you know, for a company that still isn't that profitable would actually be quite problematic. Now, of course, analysts uh, would be able to look at the market price and say, oh, that actually the price of Bitcoin is is now gone back up again. And, and, and so this is, uh, you know, only a paper loss. Nevertheless, my point is that um, you know, a lot of people were saying, oh, look, Tesla has bought Bitcoin. Other companies are now going to diversify their cash holdings and do something similar. I think unless these accounting rules are updated, a lot of companies will be very, uh, you know, disinclined to do that because they don't want to have to explain to their investors every quarter, well, you know, the price has gone up and down and we're booking an impairment and our loss, you know, we're actually making losses uh, instead of profits due to our Bitcoin investment. I think that a lot of uh, let's say, more mature companies might find that problematic. 
Have you been able to speak with anybody who wonders aloud about what might happen? So we know that central banks have literally, you know, in the last little while, just begun to take things like cryptocurrencies seriously and, you know, what they might mean for the financial universe and so on. Is there a world in which regulators and accounting regulators do have a separate category for cryptocurrencies? I mean, this morning, Musk tweeted out that he's buying Dodge now. <laughs> well, I think in fairness, look, the accounting authorities recognize that this is a, a new world and that they do need to respond. It's been on their uh, radar for a few years now. Uh, interestingly, um, Japan's accounting authorities, I think, are the most forward thinking here. They've already got a policy where essentially they allow companies to to mark to market the, the, the value of their holdings. Uh, the international, as uh, so of the IFRS rules, which are used widely outside of uh, uh, the United States, they're a bit different, uh, but they, they're slightly more nuanced than, than the U.S. approach. So I think, yes, they are looking. But interestingly, the, the U.S. had an opportunity in October when the, the Financial Accounting Standards Board met to, de- to decide what they were going to look at in the, going forward in, in terms of their technical agenda, and they declined to make... Uh, uh, cryptocurrencies an item on on that agenda suggesting they don't see it as a big priority and and it may well be of course that you know tesla remains an outlier um, i wrote about another company microstrategy which has put you know a billion dollars into it uh in, into bitcoin and they've already seen you know the price go up a lot and their share price is booming but at the same time they've also had to book impairments already because the price is so volatile but apart from these two prominent outliers and, and also square has invested a bit you haven't yet seen a lot of other companies do this and as i said uh given these accounting issues until they're solved maybe they won't so what do we has tesla said chris kind of what they want to do with this investment do they view it as an investment per se why did they do this well i mean the in their disclosures they say it's a matter of you know diversifying their cash holdings and i, I suppose you know literally you could just Say well, okay, we we don't get much uh, return on, on on cash at the moment, so why not look for other opportunities? But of course, I, I don't think anybody takes that uh, uh, you know literally in the sense that, of course, there are far uh, safer opportunities to diversify your cash holdings. I mean, uh, this is is clearly a, you know a bet on on Bitcoin and and one that's probably taken some of its investors by surprise. I think there was some some reporting out of uh, the, the Times of London this morning that. That some of the investors have said, well, look, uh, we're happy for you to do this, but you know, but there should be some limit on how much you should in, uh, be able to invest in in Bitcoin, because uh, you know, Tesla uh, until recently was you know pretty cash strapped. Last year, of course, it went out and raised uh, about 12 billion from um, investors. Now, uh, much more cash on the balance sheet, but I think a lot of investors would be pretty upset if they went and spent it all on Bitcoin, because quite clearly the price can go up, but it can also go down a lot. Fascinating story, Chris. Uh, Thanks for bringing it to us. Chris Bryant, columnist covering industrial companies for Bloomberg Opinion. He's based in uh, Berlin. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.